So my chronic pain started around 10 years old, and then chronic pain has kind of been an intermittent part of my life right through to present day. Joel Nelson is now 38 years old. My first experiences with pain was I got pains in my hip and it was like a gravelly sort of burning feeling and it just progressed. The more I used the joint, the the worse it got uh, to the point where I was sort of losing mobility and then that was when we first reached out for help on it. But getting people, both medical professionals and even friends and family, to understand and even believe an unexplained pain can be quite challenging. There was a conversation with my parents regarding see what he does when he doesn't know you're watching to see if he's still limping and there was lots of things tried around sort of growing pains and traction hanging weights off my legs and and just generally things that wouldn't be the approach you'd take for somebody with what turned out to be or immune disease so i always had a sort of a bit of a negative start off i suppose with my relationship with pain because of those experiences as a child Eventually, Joel was diagnosed with psoriasis-associated juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or JIA for short. His condition is now chronic. About a third of adults with the autoimmune skin condition of psoriasis also have arthritis. Joel has good days and bad days, but he's learnt to live with the condition. Living with my condition today, I think the, the most important takeaway about the experience is the fluidity of it. So on the bad days, it's a constant and some of those bad days start by not having any sleep the night before. So you're already sort of fairly low on resilience and in a place where you're not got the best odds to cope with it. But it's not something where I would wake up with it in the morning and it's a bad day and halfway through that day, I'm suddenly there's a fiddle again, it, it, it'll gradually come in, it'll gradually come out unless something I do in my activity initiates it. You, you might have one week where that pain is with you constantly on your shoulder. Um, I sort of describe it as a shadow sometimes. And then other weeks where you sometimes get to the point where you can almost forget that's part of your life. Um, and then that fall comes even harder when the next pain cycle comes around. Many people with chronic pain have been told there's nothing wrong with them. In medicine, pain may be a warning sign of a serious physical illness. If a physical disease is not found as the cause of the pain, though, the pain is often downgraded by the physician, because now, in their mind, it no longer signifies something serious. But the way practitioners think about pain is changing. This year, the International Classification of Disease, which is a globally used diagnostic tool for a coding system for all diseases and conditions, has begun to recognise chronic pain as a disease in its own right. And that's with or without an underlying condition. They distinguish between pain that is primary with no other pathology and pain that is secondary to another condition. It seems like a really dry response to such a massive problem of pain. But its implications are potentially huge. A doctor can now record all their patients with chronic pain. They can be counted and feel heard. Scientific research is also improving. The causes and mechanisms behind chronic pain are being investigated and starting to be understood. That could also open up the possibility of new life-changing treatments. (music) 
This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. Today we'll be exploring some of the cutting-edge research into chronic pain. We'll ask, what is behind the condition? What makes acute pain become chronic? And, most importantly, what can be done about it? So, joining me in conversation are... John Nelson, I'm a chronic pain patient and advocate. Hi, I'm Tony Yox, and I'm in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of California, San Diego. And I've been engaged in pain research and issues related to pain mechanisms and the actions of drugs in ameliorating those conditions for probably longer than some of you have been alive. So there you go. Yes, I'm Nicholas Sakai. Uh, I'm the Global News Editor at Medical News Today, and I've also got experience with chronic pain, which I wanted to share with you all. Thank you all for joining me. Now, because we're talking about pain today, I want to start by asking how you all are. Joel, how are you? I'm good. My condition, I suppose, things a little bit exasperated at the moment because I've got a lot of things coming up and a lot of my condition... You'll hear me talk about resilience again, I'm sure. A lot of my condition, that is a factor. And yeah, I'm I'm good today. I'm excited because I've got a lot of um, events and things coming up, but it does factor in and feed the pain sometimes. So yeah, probably a little bit more sore than I should be otherwise. Thank you. And Yasmin, how are you today? Yeah, today uh, I'm good on a pain scale from zero to 10, probably like a two, just because I have a few joints that are slightly sore at the moment. But apart from that, it's pretty well controlled at the moment. And Tony, do you mind if I ask you as well? Uh, I'm a fortunate individual. Aside from the usual aches and pains associated with age and so forth, I've lived a rather charmed existence when it comes to pain. I, When I hear Joel and Yasmin say what they say, I mean, it's clear that These are the things that mark down our quality of life. I mean, no matter what the condition is, whether you have a cardiac problem or a joint problem or perhaps a less well-defined problem, the thing that uh, comes up most often in patients uh, and in the normal life is that pain has produced a a burden on their ability to live a full and uh, unburdened existence. So it's all the more reason for a podcast like this to address that issue. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, it is a universal experience, but it's not a universal experience of chronic pain. Tony, I'm like you. I've got uh, bits and pieces from ageing, but it's nothing like what Joel and Yasmin are, are describing. So, Yasmin, turning to you now, we just heard about Joel's experience of chronic pain at the start of the show. How does your experience compare to that? So mine started out as a volleyball injury in my hand and... The first thing that was suspected was tendonitis. So that was what my treatment was geared towards too. So lots of anti-inflammatories, cortisone injections, rest, but it kind of progressed and then it spread to other joints and then alarm bells started ringing and we were like, oh, well, what's the bigger problem here? So it was lots of traipsing around hospitals, changing doctors. And then I think the breakthrough came when I went to my current dermatologist I had pitting on my nails, which is the little indents or little holes on your nails that psoriasis can cause. And I was fortunate enough that my dermatologist did her PhD dissertation in psoriatic arthritis. So that's when I kind of had the breakthrough and I was finally diagnosed after years of pain and these other symptoms. So that's how it all started. 
you know, this journey to diagnosis can be really difficult. Coming back to you, Joel, so we heard about the problems with pain you had as a child with the diagnosis of juvenile idiopathic arthritis. How did your condition progress? I spent most of my teenage years in and out of hospital and that brings its own trauma, which I discovered later um, around sort of separation and things. So I didn't have a very fun time as a teenager, but like a lot of people with JIA or juvenile idiopathic arthritis, I got my first proper remission just before I went to university as like, I think a lot of people, you get the combination of drugs right, but also you learn to live with it a little bit better. And there seems to be a thing there where as people sort of coming out of puberty, that there that, that, that seems to be a sort of a chance of remission there. That kind of lulled me into false sense of security and that I used the opportunity to just reinvent myself. I went to university. I didn't tell anybody about this condition. I didn't want people judging me on it. I was still taking very strong medications, things such as like methotrexate that would make me very sick when I tried to drink and keep up as a normal 19, 20 year old in them circumstances, which looking back was silly. But, you know, I understand why I did it and everything was going great. And then in my mid 20s, the pain returned and it was like being transported back in time. I felt this pain in my heel. And I knew instantly it was that of sort of arthritic nature. And it was it was so traumatic for me. I'd like to have this sort of 10-year gap, probably a little less than that, where I'd just like been a normal person and played sport and had loads of friends and toured the country in a band. And with the way I think I handled that pain brought a massive flare of psoriasis. I was covered in rashes, everything from scalp psoriasis to palmar pustular psoriasis, everything. And that in itself fueled the pain and it just got out of control. But that gave me finally access to biologics, these drugs that I've been told on the horizon when I was a child, this sort of magical thing that was coming to, to improve my quality of life. And that was great. And because of that, that then opened the way a few years later to us starting to finally plan a family and I was off some of the more toxic stuff that we couldn't start family on. And yeah, that just gave me this a second lease of life, but a lease of life I don't take for granted now. So you, you have a lovely little boy now and I want to bring Tony in. So both Joel and Yasmin have described their journey to diagnosis of what we now call a diagnosis of secondary chronic pain. So it's pain secondary to a major condition. And in their case, that's the autoimmune condition of psoriasis. So there is this thing that says pain is in the brain. How does the brain register pain when there's tissue damage of the sort that Joel and Yasmin are describing from their psoriatic arthritis? Well, I mean, your comment about pain is in the brain is absolutely the, the correct way to think about it. The output function of anything comes from the higher centers. But it's interesting in these cases that you clearly have a peripheral issue, whether it's the inflammation of a joint, inflammation in the skin, changes in peripheral nerve function. And so not only do you get changes in joint morphology and things of that sort, but you actually get changes that lead to changes in the way that the information that goes in to the spinal cord and then to higher centers. And you've activated specific populations of sensory fibers that are normally activated only by severe injury. Like, for example, right now, this doesn't hurt. No problem. Tony, just for our listeners, I can see you're wiggling your finger there. Yes, but if I were to jam my finger or if I were to develop 
in Joel's case, an event that leads to a local autoinflammation of the joint, then in fact, that inflammation leads to the release of factors which now sensitize the innervation of that joint. And all of us would have the experience, whether you suffer chronic pain or not, that if you injure a joint or you have some injury, following that injury, what was normally an innocuous activity, like wiggling my finger, becomes extraordinarily noxious. So you've got this sensitization that gets generated by the peripheral injury and inflammation. That information now goes back to the spinal cord. And it's possible for that spinal cord, which is now, in a sense, organizing the input-output function from the periphery to the brain, can become reorganized. It's very much like if I were to take a radio and turn the volume up, the signal to the radio hasn't changed, but the volume gets louder. So think of the spinal cord as a volume regulator. So at the very least, the brain is now seeing what is otherwise an innocuous event, generating a signal that looks as if, as we would say, hell has frozen over. Bad news is coming up the the pike. Now you get to the brain, and of course the brain is receiving this. And so acutely, if I pick up a hot teacup or coffee cup, it's an alert. And that's good. That's when pain is a good thing. It tells me to stop because I'm getting ready to injure myself. But in the case of where the chronic pain condition has arisen, as in Yasmin's case, or in the case of Joel, the brain is dealing with that input function. And it says, bad news has happened. But we now know, actually, that some of that input that comes up the same pathway, if you will, although it's distinct, goes to areas of the brain that has nothing to do with where does that pain come from, only that it is intense, intense. Uh, These are areas of the brain that are what we call the old smell brain or the area called the limbic system. These are areas of the brain that are in fact associated in humans with the input associated with emotionality. The output from the spinal cord is in fact informing the brain of how intense it is, where it is, and so forth, but it also feeds into this very older part of the brain that's associated with emotion. So this explains why stress amplifies pain? Yes. Joel said, you know, there are days when I know I'm under stress and things get worse. Why is that? Well, part of the reason for that is because Joel has higher order function. And that higher order function of stress feeds into the very same circuits that are being activated by this pathway coming up here. So these things come together and one will influence the other. Pain, that is the afferent input, will drive depressions, whatever. But on the other hand, Joel's memory of what's getting ready to happen or his learning experience, this is going to be a hard day, blah, 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 feeds into that exact same circuit. Let me bring Joel in now. You were nodding through that. How does that pathway with the alerted nerve terminals, the junction box in the spine, going to sort of different parts of the brain, one saying where it is, one saying how bad it is, how does that fit to your experience of pain? In terms of the lived experience, that's exactly it. Like I describe my pain to my family and loved ones around me as noise. I always have described it as noise because on the days when that pain is intense, my ability to absorb other information, deal with multiple things at a time, it's just gone. You know, So if I'm having a high pain day, I can't deal with the telly being on in the background if my son's also running around or I can't deal with that stressful decision I've got to make at work because it it physically feels like you're in a box and the walls are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So that explanation of them taking that same pathway and that that sort of processing side, I suppose, of, of pain makes perfect sense. 
Yeah, that makes absolute sense. I'm going to move us on now. What we've been talking about is pain that kind of most people can understand. There's some tissue damage. You can see there's a swollen joint or there's been cancer or there's arthritis. But then there's another form of pain, something called primary chronic pain. And the International Classification of Disease has now finally given it its own code. So, Tony, can you tell us about how important that is? Right. Well, of course, I'm not a clinician, but clinicians very much depend upon the nature of what we're defining in terms of creating a diagnosis. One of my favorite examples is fibromyalgia, which at one point was thought to be a condition of mental aberration, literally that in fact it reflected on early life experiences, maybe abuse, psychological stressors and so forth, because it was almost invariably a diagnosis of exclusion. That is say, we can't see anything wrong with you. You don't have any inflammation or infection in the traditional way. And yet here you are in usually in the rheumatologist's office waiting because you have this pain condition. And the default was there's something going on upstairs, if you will, and not in a favorable way. But we've come to realize that the fibromyalgic diagnosis, for example, is a real one. And there are underlying events that can be traced. And in fact, they have these various kinds of differences that are not found in a, quote, non-fibromyalgic population. So this idea of a primary pain condition, where you now begin to realize that there are perceptual states that can lead to an aversive reaction that is unpleasant, that is, say, painful, is one that a clinician can accept. And again, this is a big deal for a young medical student to be told that not all diagnoses require the presence of a physical appearance, that is, say, a deformed joint, a fracture, inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. That's a really big deal because it opens the medical student and the practitioner to the appreciation that it's the response of the patient that says, I am in pain, that allows them to move these diagnoses and therapies ahead. So you use the example of fibromyalgia there. For people who don't know, that's a condition that varies from person to person. It's a form of widespread pain uh, affecting at least four or five regions of the body and lasts at least three months usually longer, and no other cause is found for the pain, and it's therefore a type of primary chronic pain. Now, I want to bring Joel back in because actually your condition changed, didn't it? You had a nerve pain, which ended up being a primary pain on top of the secondary pain associated with your chronic condition. So let's pick up your story. We got to the point where you were in a good place. You were on the biologic drug and life was going well. You've had the birth of your son and then what happened? Um, well, there was two events, and I kind of describe this as like my second relationship with pain because it definitely was very different and life-changing. So NHS England had a programme of moving people over from the biologics to biosimilars, and I was in full support of that. I, I worked in the NHS myself, and I understood that the cheaper we can get access to these drugs, hopefully the more people can have those experiences that, that I was having, and I was well aware of how expensive these treatments are. So I said, yep, yeah, I'll do that providing that we can get me switched back if anything goes wrong. So I'm literally having the best period of my life. So my son arrived in January in 2019. Unfortunately, that change happened within a month of that date. And it was pretty quick 
after that that things started going wrong so i started developing psoriasis rashes again then the pain started coming back and ultimately it took 11 months to get that reversed but when i got back on the original treatment either the damage was done or it wasn't having the same effect at the time i was very angry as you can imagine and i wanted to blame things i particularly blamed the treatment change but now a couple of years down the line and i'm a lot more informed and educated i suppose as a patient I probably overlooked that there was a big factor there in that I become a first time dad and I had lots of broken sleep and I was in a constant state of worry like all new parents are that I'd walked away from the hospital with this little bundle of life and felt like I should be stopped at some point because it just felt weird. Um, so I think those two factors combining led to that and, and essentially what followed over the next two or three years, um, I lost everything. And I finally got my head around it eventually by 2021, so about two years of this. And the way it was really well explained to me by one doctor after we'd ruled out all the various things with neurology and everything, is that I was in a flare and a state of high alert for so long that the neural pathways, I'm sure Tony's going to correct me on lots of this, but this is how it was explained to me. The neural pathways that were created at the time to experience that pain just essentially didn't close off and stayed wide open and that combined with about a year's worth of intense pain management thanks to my awesome local pain management clinic that was a real turning point for me it is also what fueled all of my advocacy and the awareness stuff and everything that I do um, but just trying to take that really horrible experience and that experience of pain and frustration and grief ultimately and all the things and friends and interests that I'd lost and try to put it into something positive Tony, coming back to you then, so we've got a picture now of pain that sort of amplifies itself. Can you describe what's happening? Joel had a biosimilar which didn't work, a year of pain, and now the psoriasis is under control, but the pain is still there. What's happening when we've got this pain that is almost like self-generating? Well, I mean, I would be a totally presumptuous individual if I said I really understood what just happened. We can state the, the obvious, and Joel did, that in fact the local conditions associated with the stress of fatherhood and all the other aspects clearly played a role in what went with Joel's loss of control of the pain's condition. The fact that his clinical colleagues were able to come up with something that regulated the psoriatic response says that the biosimilar did probably work, although it could have been a dose issue, although creating biosimilars has a very high standard to show, quote, biosimilarities, equivalents. For me, it's easy to say, well, gee, I think that probably there was this very strong emotive component that's associated with what Joel's situation was. But I would be remiss if I didn't think perhaps at some point he was underdosed with the biosimilar that the pain condition and the events that were associated with the psoriatic diagnosis and other aspects, perhaps, in fact, did establish transition from one state to another. You get what we call a transition or an acute to chronic or chronification of the pain state. Now, the, the tragedy is that Joel's already in chronic pain, but something happened. And as the clinician said, that oh, there was new pathways established. Well, I'm not sure what new pathways are, but it fits in with the notion that you can transition from one pain type to another and that can be exacerbated 
by these stresses that are, quote, psychological, which can exacerbate a pain state to one that may, in fact, have an underlying physiological component that we may not really understand. So, Tony, you mentioned there this issue about the transition from acute to chronic pain states. Can you tell me a bit more about that and how that relates to neuroinflammation? Now, there's a lot of ways that this could happen. One of the ways, and in the spirit of full disclosure, an area that I think is relevant, and others may agree to varying degrees, but again, there are multiple possibilities. We know that under tissue injury of various sorts, nerve injuries of various sorts, that we can activate signaling that normally is associated with what we call innate immunity. And one of the mediators of that is something called the toll-like receptor. And it turns out that while those are normally there to recognize the presence of foreign bugs, for example, E. coli, those bugs have in their cell membrane something called lipopolysaccharide or LPS. We don't have that normally in our system, but it comes from bacteria. But it turns out that it will activate these toll receptors. And it's an important way that our body has to respond to foreign infection and so forth. You're born with it. You don't have to develop it. It's there all the time. What we've come to find out over the last years has been, in fact, that there are many products that your body releases that will, in fact, activate those very same toll-like receptors. What sort of things would your body release? Well, for example, stressors, tissue injury, particularly in the GI tract, things that are released from your microbiome of your gut will release products from inflammatory cells. And when this happens, these products that are released from our own body can in fact now activate these toll-like receptors. And there's one specific we call TLR4. And this receptor is present on inflammatory cells and it's also present on sensory neurons. And it turns out that activating TLR4 doesn't so much cause pain, although it does a little bit, it sets the system up to become more reactive, partly by the fact that when it is activated, it sets up a whole cascade in which there will be an increased expression of a a large number of receptors and channels that are able to drive an enhanced response of the system. And when this happens, then in fact, you get this enhanced response downstream to the initial tissue injury. And so that comes into the idea of gating, that in fact, these systems now change the system. Again, I don't mean to say that Joel's changes were anything to do with this mechanism I'm describing, but it's that concept that it's not so much that causes the pain condition, it just sets the system up to be more reactive. So basically what we're saying is that our innate system, that kind of initial response to infection, that that is actually part of this pain response, setting off the same sort of inflammation that being, say, infected with SARS-CoV-2 to cause COVID would cause. Similar, yes. And it seems to be what you're saying is that that can then just prime the whole system. And then if you actually have maybe a bad diet during that time, or you have stressors, that you're producing your own toxins, that that can then ping off this whole set of cascades. So you end up with acute pain becoming chronic pain. 
Well, we call it chronic pain because it lasts for a long time. Mechanistically, it reflects these changes in the way the system is working. Joel, how does that fit with your understanding of what happened? Yeah, I think the main thing that's standing out to me is that it's like many of us with these autoimmune conditions, we're obviously immune suppressed. So we experience lots of infections. If that can be a primer, then we're kind of an open door for, for some of that as it is. I've definitely experienced that where, like, for example, I've I've had a bit of a chest infection. I say a bit, it's been going on for like two months and I cannot shake it. And I understand the processes behind that. But I definitely experience pain differently when those other things are going on. It's the same as when I get run down and tired and I overdo it. The chances are that my pain is going to spike or I'm going to get another infection. So, But these things aren't often talked about in the same conversation. A lot of patients like me are out there and I know from the support groups where people don't even understand sometimes they are on immunosuppressants or they are going to get these secondary things that might play a part and to use the sort of term that Tony mentioned earlier, amplify your pain. So it's very much, you can feel it. You can feel when you're in a higher state of alert and you can't explain it. You're just so much more sensitive. It's like pinpricks on the skin almost. You're much more sensitive to the way you experience the pain. And those other things, whether it's, you know, stresses both physically and sort of mentally, you know, life events as well. But it is a, it's a very difficult conversation that patients sometimes don't want to have. Yasmin, can I just ask you, because Joel there was talking about, Antony, about the role also of the brain of amplifying pain. Now, you've had an experience with your fibromyalgia of having counselling that only one session changed your journey. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I think it was probably like a year or two into my arthritis diagnosis. I went through a lot of uh, personal events, like losing my father to cancer. And then suddenly one day I woke up with this excruciating pain in between my shoulder blades, kind of uh, close to my spine. It kind of felt like it was piercing through my chest. It was that strong. And I hadn't been playing volleyball for over a year. So I was like, well, this isn't a muscular thing. Could it possibly be a joint thing? But I was familiar with the joint pain. So I was like, this doesn't feel like an arthritic pain. So basically we did a lot of tests. I went to a cardiologist. I even had an endoscopy because we've got um, stomach cancer and esophagus cancer. So they were like, oh, maybe that's something. But basically we couldn't really find any cause for it. So my rheumatologist, she suspected fibromyalgia. But then, of course, when I look back, there's so many parallels with what was going on in my life. And basically, I think it all boils down to grief and I hadn't processed it properly. I, I hadn't grieved my old healthy self. I hadn't adjusted to being a sick person um, and then having lost my father and taking on caretaker duties and kind of stepping up uh, in your family. Um, all of that was, I think, a bit too much, even though everybody on the outside saw me as this amazing, resilient girl and nothing shook her. I think deep down it really affected me. So I had a one-off session. I don't think it was called acceptance and commitment therapy uh, back then, or it wasn't explicitly stated as, but I think that really helped me come to term with that. And soon after, I just woke up one day and I didn't have that pain anymore. So yeah, it's quite mind-boggling really. 
Thank you for sharing that. And that acceptance and commitment therapy is a sort of wave three or four, I think, of cognitive behavioural therapy that extends out a sort of flexibility of mind in response to that. So, Tony, I don't know if you've looked into the neuroscience of pain, but I understand that when people do something like mindfulness, that changes where the pain is being perceived. Is that something you're aware of? You know, we started out this conversation by saying pain is in the brain and your perceptions of what the world is about you impact very directly and in a way that is actually experimentally definable, changes the way your brain reacts. So when I say pain is in the brain, I am not saying it's any less real in any way, shape or form. It's a real thing. You know, the moment ago when I said we now teach medical students that, you know, just because you don't see the primary diagnosis as being a swollen joint doesn't mean the patient doesn't have something really going on. So there's a danger when we talk about that sort of, oh, pains in the brain. So what's your problem? Because that's not the intent at all. The intent is to actually validate and bring into reality the kinds of issues that occur when you discover that stress and so forth has changed this pain condition. And mindfulness, in a way, can help the individual respond to the nature of the afferent traffic that's coming up the spinal cord. It's not something you could become mindful enough to say have surgery done, but it might in fact take the edge off of some of the things that are driving this exaggerated response. Fibromyalgia is a perfect example of that. It's always been thought recently that fibromyalgia may be a sort of an autoimmune disease of its own right. It turns out that individuals diagnosed with fibromyalgia, if you take their plasma, which has immune complexes and antibodies of all sorts, but if you take that plasma and inject it into a mouse, those mice will develop a fibromyalgic phenotype, suggesting that there's something in the plasma of that fibromyalgic patient that is transferable to a mouse. But there's something going on that involves the presence of these immune complexes that can potentially exert their effect on the whole body because they're in the circulation and they can act upon the cell bodies of those sensory fibers to generate this pain condition. Mindfulness is oftentimes used as a therapy in the fibromyalgic patient because at some level there may not be an alternative medical intervention, but it demonstrates that changing the way you think about your pain condition can, in fact, help you deal with that pain condition. It doesn't make the pain state any less real. Let me be clear on that. Uh, And again, I use the fibromyalgic situation because for so many years, it's been considered to be associated with changes in the way you've been treated in life, your early life experience. I mean, totally psychological, which is a real thing still, but it overlooked the fact that there may very well be a physiological component just as real as the presence of antibodies that define the presence of an arthritic joint, the so-called acta antibodies. So this becomes a very important way to think about that particular syndrome. So let's wrap up now. Uh, Thank you, everyone, ever so much. Yaz, do you have any final comments you want to make? There wasn't anything I wanted to add. I think we've learned a lot about different experiences of chronic pain, as well as the science behind it. Joel. 
Uh, no, just say it's been really fascinating. And, and I know how, from a patient perspective, it is a really delicate conversation when you talk about pain and, and it being residing in the brain. And, and as somebody who's gone full circle through that journey of being horrified when that was first suggested to going through pain management and then understanding it so I could process it better, um, it changed everything for me. So, uh, yeah, I just hope somebody can take something away from this and reach out for those sort of all those various support therapies and things we've talked about on the show thank you very much joel the fact that researchers like tony are beginning to understand chronic pain conditions in entirely different ways i think we'd all agree is promising and that means that perhaps in future drugs might be developed to impact those receptors that tony talked about in a way that could even result in your pain not going from acute to chronic like happened to you joel And of course, the other angle is incredibly important. Chronic pain is a debilitating condition, whether it's primary or secondary, and it's finally been recognised and people's suffering is being counted. That can only be a good thing. Joel Nelson, Tony Yaksh, Yasemin Sakai, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. And of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about chronic pain on medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again at the end of October with a discussion about breast cancer. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today. <laughs>